Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. Uh, you can check us out wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, uh, pretty much any podcast uh, platform you can find the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Wherever you do listen, though, please rate and review, subscribe. It always helps. Um, I have been pushing YouTube a lot more recently. I've been pushing good pods. We do fairly well in the, uh, film history, uh, rankings over there, good pods. And, uh, that's always good to see. But yeah, wherever you listen, I hope you continue to enjoy the podcast because we always have some great, uh, guests as well as some great topics. I'm looking forward to including this one as part of that. You can also check us out at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. There you will find series like Leaving the Collection, where I look at a film from my physical media collection that doesn't really have much of a purpose in my collection anymore. I watch it one last time and I get my thoughts on it. As well as Life Soundtrack, where I look at an al- listen to an album and kind of explain where uh, what made me get the album in the first place, and why it connected with me. And both of those are for available with, for subscribers at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. So I did not necessarily anticipate August being a month of uh, paranoia thrillers, but that's kind of how we... Uh, it's kind of how the cookie crumbled when it came to my schedule. We were originally going to have a uh, great episode in the middle, but that's going to be pushed back to later because I couldn't quite get to uh, preparing for it in time with everything else going on when it comes to work, when it comes to life, and when it comes to my movie reviews. But this one I did want to get to because of the fact that it's a movie that really have had a deep amount of affection for, and I do still, and I do feel like this is probably one of my favorite films from this filmmaker, is David Fincher's The Game from 1997. Joining me to discuss it is a past guest. He's been on the episode podcast we, before. We've discussed documentaries. We've discussed The Godfather. I've joined him on his podcast, The Movie Loot, we talked about silent cinema, and today I'm pleased to be joined once again by Carlo from the Movie Loop. Carlo, how are you doing? I'm doing great and looking forward to this discussion. Thrilled to be here again. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's always great to uh, talk to you, and I I know uh, this is this is maybe I don't know necessarily if it's a film that is very uh meaningful to you but it's certainly a filmmaker that i know is very meaningful to you because i know how much you like uh david fincher as a filmmaker and we've actually i know we've actually kind of discussed possibly discussing fincher on the uh podcast before when you were first going to be a uh, guest you brought him up and um we've already you know in my class of 99 series we talked about fight club with Jacob Belinsky, that was a tremendous episode. Um, this is really the first time I've had a chance to talk to talk about Vin, 
Fincher since, and um, I'm looking forward to uh, talking to him with you. Uh, first of all, though, if because it's been a while since it's been over a year since you've been on the podcast. Um, yeah. And I did want to say, I, I mentioned it to uh, Jason from Binge Movies when I had him on back in June, but I did want to say how much I enjoyed uh, the discussion you and he had on John Woo's <laughs> Hong Kong films. And you, you didn't hate me? No, no, not at all. I mean, you know, I, 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 I respect the opinion on Bull in the Head. I really do. And I will say, I do, look, and I know Hard Target has some affection, and I get it. Um, I will say though, one of the things I did love is how every single one, one line synopsis of his Hong Kong film basically was the same thing. But the fact of the matter is that is kind of Wu's thing in the, uh, in his Hong Kong films. He is exploring similar themes. And so I wanted to, but I wanted to tell, take this opportunity to tell you how much I enjoyed, um, how much I enjoyed your, uh, your your work on that episode, and I really enjoyed the conversation you and Jason had. Thank you. It, it was it was unique. It was really, uh, like I said on that episode, I, I wasn't uh, very very um, illustrated in the career of John Woo beside mm-hmm. beside his his American uh, films. So it was really a, an interesting adventure to dive in and, uh, into that Hong Kong filmography. Yeah, I think that was one of my favorite parts about it was the fact that you guys were basically novices together in his yeah. Hong Kong work, and that's part of what made that uh, very exciting. And look, Carlo, I mean, even though I have, I I greatly admire Bold in the Head, and I know you put it at number five, I I couldn't possibly hold it against you nearly as much as I did Jason when he mistakenly. Miss Miss uh, misspoke on what freaking instrument tequila is playing in hard boiled. I mean that that is that that was just inexcusable. Um, <laughs> he, he's not gonna outlive that. No, he he's not living that down. Even though I forgot to mention it to him when we were uh, when he was on the up podcast back in June. But we are not talking about John Woo today. We're talking about David Fincher. And uh, I, I think that's probably a good place to start with this conversation. Um, what was your first what was your first real interaction with uh, Fincher's work? Oh man, uh, right at the beginning, um, I just wanted to to highlight that you mentioned. Uh, you question, I don't know, I know that Fincher is is uh, meaningful to you, I think. And I actually just finished recording an episode on, on, on Fincher uh, a couple of days ago that will will be coming out and uh, probably, let's say, before before the end of August, I, I hope to have it out. So uh, look forward to more Fincher discussion. Um, I, I actually saw Alien 3 in, in theaters. Um, not Obviously, we didn't know who Fincher was. I just saw it because it was an alien sequel and I wanted to see an alien sequel. Uh, so that was my, my actual first interaction with the man. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, I know I did not see alien three in theaters. So my first, my first, uh, my first experience with him was seven in uh, yeah. 95. And 
you know, I, it's it's a movie that really, I mean, even if I didn't love it immediately, it stuck with me. The the sense of style he delivered, the performances he got out of Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, pretty much everybody in that movie. Yeah. And just the gut punch that that ending brought to the story. And, uh, yeah. you know, one, that that's something where even, even if you're not familiar with his work for the first time, you probably, even if you're not overly familiar with his work or haven't necessarily seen his work yet, chances are you're familiar with Seven. Or in the yeah. sense that you've at least heard of it, you've heard of that ending, you've heard of just what and what what a absolute punch that that ending is yeah. and i i think that is that is one of the great testaments to finchers that he he really doesn't even even in something that is more overtly sentimental which is something i i'm i'm not as big a fan of the film as i am some of his others but even something like Curious Case of Benjamin Button, I, I think there's there's definitely some moments where you can see Fincher uh, really really being uncompromising in his vision of that film. And I think that's one of the yeah. great things about his work as a whole. Yeah, and one one thing that uh, I I think I pretty much saw I, I've seen all his films. In a chronological order, even if I didn't, even if I haven't seen most of them in theaters, I think Alien Three is the only one I, I saw in theaters. I think I saw Panic Room. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I think I saw Panic Room in theaters, um, but 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 Seven is something that that I, I I always mention this when I talk about Fincher and his films. But Seven is a film that uh, I rented with a group of friends, and it was just a, a, a unique experience just to rent this film and, and a group of like 10 or, or 12 mixed friends. I mean, there were uh, guys and girls and we just went to a house of, of one of one of us and just put that in, just thinking, oh, we're going to have a, a, we're going to have fun with this. Just a, a typical movie night. Mm -hmm. and, there, and during that last half hour, everybody was just so quiet and, and, and our jaws were on the floor in that, mm -hmm. in that ending. It, it's, it's a film that Everybody was at the end like, "What?" <laughs> we just we just couldn't believe what what we had seen. It, it really made an impact on, on all of us. And to this day, I, I I still hold it as my second favorite film, uh, not only because of how good it is, but I always see it as as a kind of formative film for me. Something like like a, a, a bit of a gateway film into what films can be, uh, what films can do. Uh, being so bleak, so dark, so uncompromising, so bold to have this ending. Uh, and I, I really love that film, Seven. And, and the point that I wanted to get to, and I, 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 I digress, but, but the point that I wanted to get to is that something that, that you can see through all his filmography, uh, he likes to focus on isolated human beings. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's something that you can see all through his filmography, he he likes to focus on, on the, the, that darkness inside people, um, obsessions, 
those are kind of his themes, and that's something that that you kind of see in, in in the film that we're going to talk today. The game. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, and I mean, you can definitely see that through line, whether it's something like Seven, whether it's uh, Fight Club or uh, Zodiac or Social Network even, and uh, then, of course, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, um, and uh, Mank. And, I mean, you can, yeah, I, I, I definitely see that through line, and that's something that honestly had not really occurred to me when uh, thinking about Fincher's work because of the fact, I mean, you know, you when you think Fincher's work, I, I think for the most part, I think what a lot of people gravitate towards first is the style. Uh, it's very per, very specific visual style. Uh, a lot of dark, a uh, lot of darkness in it, which goes to, to the sometimes complicated sense of morality. Um, mm -hmm. But also, you even even in something like Benjamin Button, which is ultimately something that is that in other hands would be very wistful and romantic you know to your point it does go to it is essentially about character who is isolated by nature of yeah. by the nature oh, he was of born. his yeah of his his experience and so you know, it, it it's and that one is interesting. I'm not a huge fan of it, but ultimately, what I do think is kind of interesting is watching Fincher as a director bump up against Eric Roth as a screenwriter. You know, I mean, there are moments in that movie that do very much remind me of Forrest Gump and Eric Roth's work, and that's that movie, which you know, Forrest Gump is a movie. I I'm not. I don't have a huge amount of nostalgia for it. I think it ages very poorly to a certain extent. Yeah. But, I mean, I and I think there are times where Roth's vision of it kind of, it, it, it kind of overpowers what Fincher's trying to do. But at the same time, even, even with uh, Benjamin Button, you still feel that sense of sadness, that still feel that, sense of isolation. I think there are some wonderful moments in Benjamin Button that uh, Fincher's able to bring out of that movie. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, it, it's probably on, on the bottom tier for me, uh, but it's a film that uh, e even though it's in the bottom tier for me, I, I don't dislike any of his films, but uh, even though it's in that bottom tier, it, it, it's, it, it stucks with me. Um, that ending, that that last uh, probably 15 minutes or so, we, when you when you see where the story leads you in that end uh, between these two characters, uh, Kate, um, uh, Kate Blanche's character and Benjamin Button, it's so eerie and so haunting. That that specific last scene between them, it's just something that that it, it's. I just don't know how to explain it. So hunting, yeah. so eerie, it, it it gets stuck, it gets under your skin, and, and uh, it, it's always what I gravitate to when I think about that film, even though it's, like I said, in that bottom tier, even though I think there's a clash, and I, I like what you said, because I, you get to feel that clash between 
David Fincher's sensibilities, and maybe I don't want to I don't want to say this in a, a dismissive way or, or derogatory way, but I think he wanted to make something for 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 an award, or he wanted mm -hmm. to make something that appealed to that crowd. Um, and you kind of get that. You you, you kind of get that sense in in some of the films he made. Even even something like Zodiac, which I love. It, it's it's probably my second favorite film of him, but it it has such an epic scope. Mm -hmm. And I think he he uh, this is me speculating, but I think he was uh, broken or or disheartened by how that film was dismissed. Yeah. Uh, by by, I mean, it, I don't think it got it. I don't think it was nominated at all, but for no, anything, no, I don't think, no, no, nothing. And then I find that incredible. I, yeah. I just can't believe that it's baffling. Uh, but then you, you see the films that he made after that, uh, Benjamin Button, Social Network, and they're all, they're that kind of film uh, mm -hmm. that has, still has the Fincher flavor uh, and, and those uh, themes that I was talking about, isolation, obsession, um, uh, maybe the darkest uh, rearms of 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 the uh, of the inner pe of the, the the human being, um, but in a way that that might appeal. You know, I'm, I'm gonna make this to appeal to to a certain crowd, yeah. uh, not the same crowd that that I made Seven or the Game or Panic Room. Uh, uh, that that's kind of what I got from from mm -hmm. him. No, I can definitely see that uh, being the case. You can definitely. You you definitely feel like Benjamin Button ultimately might be coming from a very different uh, place than something like Zodiac. I mean, Zodiac, which is probably my favorite David Fincher film, um, it's it's a movie. It's very uncompromising in the way it approaches that story yeah. and the way that you see all of the characters and the way that the obsession with Zodiac destroys them in a large in a large sense yeah. and changes them profoundly and uh you know yeah I, it's 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 that's that's one of those cases where it's it's truly criminal uh at that movie did not get nominated for any oscars because of the fact that in a right just world it should have but um yeah i mean you definitely see that change i mean you know, even something like Girl with a Dragon Tattoo was an adaptation of a very famous novel that had already been remade in, uh, that had already been adapted. So it was, it was a yeah. new version of an acclaimed novel. So, you know, you, you kind of see the prestige in that. You kind of see the prestige in Gone Girl. And then, of course, Mank uh, is something he adapted. He, he he made from a script that his father had done, yeah. and so um, you know. And part of the reason we decided to touch on the game this year is because of the fact that Fincher is going to be back with a new movie this year, uh, The Killers, probably coming out in November. Yeah. But you know, it, it's funny. I I talked about at the top of this episode that I didn't necessarily expect my August to be on the podcast to be basically about paranoid movies because at the beginning of the month, we talked about John Frankenheimer's paranoia trilogy of 
Manchurian Candidate, Seven Days in Heaven in May, and uh, Seconds. And you know, it's it's funny because of the fact that I, you know, the game is a movie I I know I saw in theaters, and I really liked it. I didn't. I don't know that I would say I loved it, but I really enjoyed it, and it really stuck with me. Um, but And I was definitely excited when it finally hit the Criterion Collection in 2013. It's, I'm like, okay, I absolutely have to get this because of the fact that it just continues to just go around in my head. Um, but one of the things that occurred to me a couple of years ago... Uh, I, I, I've kind of talked about it on the podcast. I talked about it a lot when we talked about Frankenheimer's work because I think Frankenheimer's work is very much um, something that I think resonate. a big part of the reason that it resonates now is we live in an age where conspiracy theories are very much in the forefront of politics. And, uh, you know, you, you think about the QAnon conspiracy theory, you can, and I do feel like there are elements of all of those Frankenheimer movies that fit into this. And to a certain extent, I think the game, in a way, has elements of that as well. And it's basically, I, I think to a certain extent, it's a movie, uh, basically, you, you can see it in a way as tearing a rich person down to where... He has nothing left that can protect him. But also, it's it's very much in this idea of live-action role-playing, LARPing, which is essentially what the game is. It's a live-action role-play that Nicholas Van Orton, the Michael Douglas character, make, finds himself involved in um, unex, unwittingly, to a certain extent, even though <laughs> yeah. it is a... Uh, you know, even though it's a birthday present from his uh, brother Conrad, played by Sean Penn, uh, he he doesn't necessarily, even though he goes to the company, CRS, and goes through all of the things that they, the tests and all of that stuff, he's told, oh yeah, you're not really a good candidate for this. And it's like, oh, okay. And then all of a sudden, uh, and then all of a sudden, his game begins almost, under his that, feet. That same day. And yeah. uh, so when did you first see the game? Uh, like I tell you, I think I've seen all of Fincher films almost chronologically, but it wasn't theaters. I, I, I'm pretty sure I rented it. Uh, I think I saw it alone. I rented it and I saw it at home. And, and it was a film that, that I, I I enjoyed from the beginning. It's a film that I, I bought. I, I'm not a big I'm not a big physical media collector, but I like to buy the films that I like, films that films that I know uh, I'm gonna rewatch and I'm gonna have fun with them. And, and that's a film that I think I have on even on VHS, uh, and I and I have the DVD. I know I have the DVD, and I think I I had the VHS originally. Mm -hmm. So it's a film I I, I watch and rewatch often. Uh, and it's a film that I, I enjoyed and I even rewatched it. I rewatched it uh, this week because yeah. I wanted to be ready for, for the discussion, but I, I had rewatched it like uh, two or three years ago, maybe. Uh, so it's very fresh in my mind. It's a film I've seen a, a, a lot of times. Uh, and I think it has grown in my esteem 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not, I don't know if I'm buried the lead because I don't know when this episode this episode will come out, and I don't know when my episode will come out. But it made my Fincher top five. Uh, it's on my Fincher top five. It's one of my one of my favorites, uh, based on how much I've seen it and how much I, I've uh, gravitated towards it versus other Fincher films, which I've seen maybe only once, uh, and and I haven't felt the need to rewatch them. Uh, just just to to give you an example, Girl Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I saw uh, shortly after the release. I rented it. I saw it. I remember. I enjoyed it a lot. I have it ranked uh, fairly highly on Letterbox, but I just don't remember a lot about it. Yeah, it, it it's not a film that has stuck with me, um, even though I remember enjoying it. Uh, but the game, it's a film that that sticks with you. Yeah, uh, even. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to jump too much ahead, but even though a lot of the things that happen might not uh, might not hold that well to close scrutiny, especially mm-hmm. towards the last act, yeah. Um, and, and even Fincher wasn't that keen on that very last act, um, but but it still it still makes you it still gets your wheels turning, and that's what I like. I like films that that gets gets my my, my brain working and think, how did they do that, or or when did this start, or how did this uh, came to be, or uh, at in what point did the did they start pretending and they start when did the game starts and when did the game ends? Yeah. Even even at even at the end, is the game over? Mm. Uh, you, you don't know. Uh, there, there's a, a an interesting exchange at the end with uh, Christine, uh, Deborah Karaonger character, uh, where uh, they go out and they have this uh, nice exchange. I'm going to the airport. I have another game and whatever. Um, and and she tells she tells uh, Michael Douglas, Nicholas Van Orton, uh, Chris, Christine is not my name. Uh, my real name is I, I don't even remember. But but uh, but but. It, it keeps you wondering, is, is that her real name? Is mm-hmm. the game over? Or, or is still some, some level of facade in, in what they're, uh, in the exchange or in what they're living? So it, it's really interesting. I, I really love it. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, that third, the third act is like, it, it does kind of feel like an ending trying to find the middle in a way, yeah. like you're you're trying to figure like he knows where he wants to get the ending to go, but he's not quite sure whether the way he's going is the right way to go. Um, I mean, yeah, it it, it does it does uh, raise the question as to whether when the when the game starts for Nicholas, does it start the second uh, Conrad gives him that envelope? Is it the second that he goes into CRS? Is it basically, you know, and why exactly does, you know, and I mean, how much can we trust CRS at the end? I mean, is this something that Conrad is, is, is it, is it just all part of the game? Is this something that Conrad came up with? Is this something that, he's in too deep with and that's why he had to get he, that's why he had to get Nicholas to go along I mean it it, it does raise a lot of interesting questions and I, I I think that's one of the things that's one of the things that was so interesting about Michael Douglas in this 
stretch of his career, the 80s and 90s, I, I think really starting with Fatal Attraction, and I mean, this might have been one of the last movies that really utilized it really well, is this idea that Michael Douglas, I mean, you know, when... I know for me, one of the first times I really noticed Michael Douglas was Romancing the Stone, and he's this big, he's this macho guy who, you yeah. know, nothing can phase him. Like, he's, he's, he's somebody who's seen it all. And then, you know, you, you look at Fatal Attraction and then Basic Instinct and then Disclosure and then this. Wall Street. And I'll be honest, I've, I'll be honest, I don't remember if I've seen Wall Street. I might, okay. I, I'm pretty sure I've seen Wall Street, but it's been so long that I, I kind of don't feel comfortable with saying I've seen Wall Street. Because it would basically <laughs> yeah. be a new movie to me. Um, yeah. But no, it, but yeah, I mean, basically it's this this whole idea that this character who feels like they are, they can't be touched by society, all of a sudden has something that challenges them in a way that they've never been challenged before. And, you know, whether it's Catherine Trammell in Basic Instinct, whether Basic it's Instinct. Alex in Fatal Attraction, whether it's Demi Moore's character and being accused of sexual harassment and disclosure, and whether in and the idea of this game that you just don't know what to expect with it. I I think the it in a way, in this run of movies, I, I think the more vulnerable Michael Douglas is, the more interesting his performance becomes. I, I think that's one of the things that I like about his work in the game is that this might be some of the most vulnerable work that he's done in his entire career. And I, but there's still this sense of arrogance to him when he thinks he's found something out. Yeah, he, he that, that stretch that you mentioned, he really made a name playing a wealthy, uh, businessmen assholes yeah. uh in in pretty much all those films the 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 typical sort of uh, businessman that you see in wall street that you see uh in federal attraction not so much but but he's he's a businessman he's someone that i, I don't remember what job he, he has in federal attraction book but whatever uh and uh, you get you get this in the game you get traffic where he's um i think he's a politician in traffic yeah. um but it, but it's that kind of of high class uh, guy that it's like you said not not you, you can touch him, um, and yet here he is uh, broken by all these things that that happened to him, and it's great how you see that performance uh, evolve mm -hmm. through a film because in the, in the beginning you see. There, there's going back to what I mentioned. When did the game starts? That that first act, where you see his arrogance. He's so good playing that that arrogant asshole. Mm -hmm. uh, when when he's in the restaurant and he's I, I love that. It, it, so many little details. But for example, he's in that restaurant waiting for Conrad and he says, um, the waitress walks by and he says, "This is iced tea." Like, like yeah. <laughs> you haven't you haven't filled this. And by the way, that's Christine. He still hasn't received yeah. the 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 
the present, the gift from Conrad, but that's Christine. Mm -hmm. You don't see her, but that's Christine. So again, when did the game start? Um, but you see that arrogance and that uh, when he goes, how dismissive he is when he goes to CRS of all the process. And they gave James Drivehorn is so great in that film. Um, and he gives him all the forms and he said, what are you really selling? You know, uh, uh, I don't care about this, but he really cares. Yeah. Because uh, I, I, one of the things that I was talking with, with my guests in, in my episode was that he actually craves this. Uh, he wants this uh, break from routine. He wants this, this, uh, and that's, that's why he goes along with it. Even though, you know, the test and all the, the physical uh, uh, exams that they are running on him take all his day, you know, he's going along because he, he this is, this is something different to what he's used to. Um, and, and it's so great to see him progress from that to how you see him in the end. Uh, where you see him already humbled, uh, broken down, um, uh, acknowledging maybe all, all his faults and mistakes and all the things that he had done wrong. Uh, it, it's a really interesting performance. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think that's, you know, in getting to that ending, like you, you do get the impression as the film goes along that this, the reason Conrad sets this up for him is because of the fact that he feels like his brother needs to kind of be taken down a step and really it would be coming too much of an asshole. It's, it's sort of it in, in a weird way. It's, it's almost, it's a wonderful life in a sense because of the yeah. fact that like, yeah. he, like George Bailey is basically stripped of everything he thought he knew until he gets to this point where he realizes it's like my life has not turned out the way it, it probably should have. And, you know, I, I probably should be more appreciative of the life that I have. And, you know, this is he, so this coincides with his 48th birthday, which it was, he, his father was 48 years old when he, killed himself that has made abundantly clear and Nicholas yeah. Witten witnessed his father killing himself. Yeah. So, I mean, that's obviously the, the bait on the hook for Nicholas to, you know, kind of get out of it, get pulled out of his comfort zone and to really reckon with the idea that he, you know, being, successful like his dad does not necessarily mean he's successful you know yeah. being a financial success does not necessarily mean you are a personal success and i think that's one of the things that is so interesting about the game the way it unfolds is that it basically is working towards getting him to that realization that just because of the fact that you have everything in life that you feel like you need doesn't mean that you have the things you you should need you do actually need yeah and, and they they make it so clear uh, in all that those first scenes that you have where you see him around his house everything so cold and dark uh, even when in the scene where he's having, he, he had his, uh, his first breakfast 
and the only person that's there is the, the, the maid and the, the kitchen is so dark. Um, and uh, there's uh, the, the birth, even the birthday scene when he gets home and he only gets like a, a, a the, the maid left him like a cupcake and he's yeah. eating alone. <laughs> um, so there's that that sense of, like I said, I've really, I haven't really achieved what maybe what I need. Um, I'm still going back to what I mentioned in the opening. I'm still isolated. I'm still alone. Um, I don't have a, a the conversation with his ex-wife, uh, which is so he's so. Uh, dismissive of her um it, it's it's uh really a, a, a establishing where he is mm -hmm. uh, going to to where he will end yeah yeah and and you know i mean the the thing is it's like when that you know and when he gets home that night after he's been he he's supposedly doesn't fit the profile for the game you know, he, he yeah. comes home and obviously that wooden clown is there. It's in the exact same location that his father's body yeah. has uh, fell. And you know at that moment, it's like, oh, that was just a put on. The game is officially on and that was just them, you know, that was just them making him think the game wasn't going to start. But, oh, the game is starting and he's flustered by it when they tell him, like I said, he's flustered when they tell him, even though he pretends like he doesn't care, yeah. but he's flustered when they tell him, no, your, 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 your profile doesn't fit what, what we want. And yeah. he's like, what? <laughs> so again, he, he wants this. He, he wanted this. Yeah. And I mean, I do like, you know, I, I really like, um, I really like Douglas in this role. I, I think this yeah. is the type of, you know, this is the type of role that he did. He does really well, and I I think it's it's something that I don't know that I don't know that he, I mean even though yes he did win an Oscar for Wall Street, I don't know that he ever really got a whole lot of credit for beyond that. I mean he he's certainly been acclaimed in other movies, but because of the fact that so much of what he is best known for kind of like pop boiler thrillers. I don't know that as opposed to prestige films, you, you kind of get the impression that, you know, he, he was somebody who, you know, Hollywood certainly appreciated him because of the fact that he brought people into the theater, but they didn't necessarily appreciate why we went to the theater or we watched his movies. We rented his, movies uh if we didn't catch them and you know it's 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 interesting to see i mean he he kind of is in in the last 20 years or so he's kind of he had kind of gotten into the same routine a lot of the older actors like pacino and de niro and stuff they they did as far as you know older you know older men comedies and stuff like that. And it's like, that's that's not who Michael Douglas is. I mean, he can do comedy very well, but it's like, that's not who he is. He, he was, was he in one of the, I think it was in Las Vegas? I haven't yeah. seen it, but yeah. I think it was I, in with I, Morgan I, Freeman. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I believe that was, I believe that was the one he was in. But yeah, I mean, he he's like, 
I mean, I, I do think part of it is because of the fact that, I mean, we have seen such a change in what Hollywood prioritizes in terms of the type of movies they prioritize. I mean, you know, the best thing he's probably known for in the past 20 years is playing Hank Prim in the Ant-Man movies. Uh, yeah. And, you know, he's fine in that role, but at the same time, it's like, that's that's not what we... That's not what we enjoy watching Michael Douglas play. Yeah. I, I, I'm actually seeing this in Marvel. That's pretty much all that he has done in the last uh, 10 years, maybe. Yeah. It only with, with a couple of one or two uh, other films. That, that's all he has done. I, I think he has been sick the past decade or so. And I, I think he yeah, did, yeah. I think he did yeah, have I, throat I, cancer. And I, I think yeah. that's... That's that's certainly minimized what he's been able to do on screen, but still the idea that yeah. you know what most people know nowadays is in in Marvel movies it it goes to this eternal question of you know is you know it it's sort of like oh I know Hank Allen is from Star Wars and it's like okay sure but he had this entire career <laughs> before Star Wars. And it's like, is that really, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, we, we all, you know, I mean, Al Guinness's feelings on Star Wars are pretty notorious, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, really, if, if all you know from Michael Douglas is the Ant-Man movies, it's like, please look at some of his movies in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Even, even in the 70s, not to deviate too much, but a couple of, uh, months ago, I saw the China Syndrome, and isn't mm -hmm. it? His role is it's not that big, but but it's a key role. Um, and uh, he was pretty good. He was pretty yeah. good, and he was a producer also, which is which that's uh, that's another thing to his career that he got into the producer seat uh, pretty much from the beginning. Yeah, and he took advantage of that, and he's he's produced uh, a lot of great films. And, yeah, and he, films. he he was he was an I think he was was one of the Oscar winners on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which he produced. Yes. Yes, that's the first one. Yeah. That's the, the first that he won, yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, but yeah, I mean, my, Michael Douglas is just a uh, terrific, terrific actor. I mean, you know, the, the fact, I mean, obviously having a uh, father in Kirk Douglas no doubt helped get him in the door as a producer and, you know, what he wanted to do in Hollywood. But still, I mean, I, I think one of the things that is... One of the things that's interesting about Michael Douglas, one of the things that you really do hope for when it comes to, you know, there's a lot of talk always about, like, Nepo babies and stuff like that when it comes to actors who have legacies and stuff like that, who are part of legacy families. And, I mean, certainly Michael Douglas is part of that. But at the same time, I, I think one of the things you can't help but admire about Michael Douglas is that he's not just known for being Kirk Douglas's son. Like yeah. he, he, if you didn't know who Kirk Douglas is, you would still know who Michael Douglas is. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the things where, you know, that's, he is a case of somebody who used that privilege of being a famous person's son and parlayed it into his own path. And I think that's, that's one of the things that you know you 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 hope for with any uh, 
actor or filmmaker who has talent who decides to pursue filmmaking in their own right. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And, and definitely, like I said, uh, his role in producing uh, acclaimed films and, and he certainly has brought that to, uh, to his career. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've spent a lot of time on Michael Douglas here, but I mean, and certainly he's the, he, he's the main focus of attention. He's basically in every scene of this movie. I, I do want to talk about the movie itself. And one of the things that I, I always, whenever I rewatch this film, I always forget how perfect Sean Penn is as Conrad. Oh, and yeah. I love how different his energy is than Douglas's. Like Douglas is basically a smarmy asshole and Penn is somebody who he there's just something about him that you don't you don't know how to tr who to trust whether to trust him or not. Yeah, he he he's, he's, he plays him a bit like a jerk. Yeah, but 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 that you feel like there's uh, even from their first meeting you feel like there's this bottled up uh, anger and tension in him. Um, I think that when they have that first conversation, when he congratulates him and he says, uh, did he mistakes like his, uh, the date or something like I said, it was yesterday and he was, Hey, whatever. Um, so you, you get that the relationship is not a strong relationship. Yeah. You get that there's some tension and, and it gets to that. It goes to that. What you say, it creates that mistrust. It's this guy, uh, or really, or is he trying to deceive something? And and it's certainly that's certainly put into gear when the game uh, continues, and you start to wonder who's really the one that that uh, is Conrad behind all of this? Is, yeah. is who is behind all of this? Yeah, absolutely. And um, but the thing is, it's like even though you have that tension, you also get the get the impression that these two are brothers. Like you yeah. do believe that these two are brothers, and I, you know, n n this is this is where I do want to bring up like Jody. So the original plan was to have Jody Foster. I think the original plan was to have Jody Foster play Nicholas's daughter, which they originally, you know, they originally thought about. And I mean, she's twenty years old, younger than. Douglas is so yeah technically that could have worked but at the same time because of the fact that we've grown we've watched uh Joey Foster grow up on screen as well it it still would have been very weird so they also they they tried to make her this a sister and that that didn't really sit well with anybody so she ended up leaving the uh production and they yeah, went you, with Ken you you mentioned that to me and, and it really blew my mind <laughs> when you brought it up on Twitter and I was reading about it and it was actually that that at least what I found out um, they originally wanted Foster to to play uh, Michael Douglas' sibling but she uh, thought it would be better for her to be uh, Michael Douglas' daughter and uh, Fincher and Douglas didn't like that idea so they dropped and I think Foster didn't didn't take it too well yeah um, and, and, but at least uh, apparently they mended because she, she was later in panic room mm -hmm. with, with Fincher so at yeah. least uh, it seems that they they uh, uh, fixed that up 
But the thing that that it is that ever since you brought that up on Twitter, I haven't stopped thinking about that because as much as I like Sean Penn and he's great, it's it just thinking about Jolly Foster and that role and the different dynamics that would be with a, a between a brother and a sister. Mm-hmm. It, it, I just would like to see that version of I, the film. You know, and the thing is, it's like you you have to wonder what. You know, I mean, I, I mentioned the type of energy that Sean Penn brings to the role of Conrad. Like, Jodie Foster would have brought something completely different. Would yeah. she have played it closer to what she later played in Inside Man for Spike Lee, that type of icy, uh, no-holds-barred yeah. female? Or That's precisely played, what I had in mind. Or, yeah. or would she have played... Uh, the character as more of a more of a ball buster, but in a playful way. Like, what type of what type of performance would we have gotten from Jodie Foster? It's fascinating to think about. I mean, yeah. Sean Penn, I think, is absolutely perfect in yeah, the role, but it's great. one of those what ifs that you just don't, you can't, like you said, you can't get out of your head once you hear about it. Because of the fact that it's like, that would have been really, it would have been weird to see. And I mean, yeah, the the daughter thing just wouldn't have worked at all. And I mean, honestly, I no. I understand where I understand where Fincher and Douglas were coming from. And yeah, I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that her and Fincher mended fences because I she's terrific in Panic Room. Yeah, um, yeah, you know. But yeah, uh, I you know it's it's. It's interesting because of the fact that, like, this is this is a movie that takes place in San Francisco, and I'm I'm fascinated by the way that Fincher Fincher shooting this film in San Francisco does so very differently than he does in Zodiac. I mean, now, granted, Zodiac yeah. is a period film, so I mean, obviously, you're going to light the film differently. You're going to go for different hues and the colory colorization but i think i think the he he approaches he approaches san francisco in this movie almost as a nightmare in in a way it's very much a film noir in a lot of ways and i mean it yeah. it's it's something where he it, it's claustrophobic in a lot of ways, too, in the way we we get the impression of what the city is because of the fact that you just feel like everything's closing in around Nicholas in this movie. Yeah, whether whether it's I, I I really hadn't thought about it as a film novel, but it it really it really uh, it really is. Um, but yeah, it, it, even what I mentioned about the house, the way that the house feels so um, close enough on him, so so empty, and yet he's so boxed in in that space. The way the office feels, the way that he's framed when he's in his desk. One of the first scenes when he's in his desk, and the secretary is like telling him stuff about what he has to do. Um, that's when he tell she tells him about the. Uh, see more butts, yeah. Um, and, and the way that that uh, Fincher shots it, it's like closes in slowly on him, and and he's boxed in by the doors and the and, and the surroundings of the office, 
and then it's the, the the dark streets or it's the elevator where they're trapped or it's the the uh, Christine's quote unquote house, uh, the 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 taxi cab where he's drowning. Everything is it, to, to call it claustrophobic is definitely spot on because he's always so uh, enclosed and trapped and 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 dying to get out of whatever he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, and Christine, played by Deborah Kara Unger, is very much a film noir, is is very much a femme fatale in a lot of ways. You can't necessarily trust her, and there's a hint of possible romantic connection, but there's certainly not a lot of it early on, but as the film goes, it's like you. she keeps they keep ending up together and they keep ending up in this situation together to the fact that they're on that roof together at the very end. And you, it, it's a very natural conclusion to it. It's a very natural conclusion to this part of their story. And I mean, Unger is an actress who, you know, I mean, most people really would have known her from Cronenberg's crash uh, she's also in. Uh, she she was also in uh, Brian Helgeland's Payback with Mel Gibson, and okay. um, so yeah, it's 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 one of the things. And she she's not. And the thing about her that I like is that she's not the she's not the typical like bombshell actress that you would see in a film noir. But she she projects that sense of dangerousness and uncertainty yeah. about the world that is just absolutely perfect for this role. Yeah, and she she has a, a there's a, a, a feistiness that she has that that I think is necessary for 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 us to believe that she'll be able to because her job her job primarily obviously we don't know from the beginning that she's in on it yeah but her job is pretty much to lead uh nicholas through through whatever they're going through and and to that extent we we can talk about uh when they have this uh, flirty romantic exchanges for example when she tells him that oh when they told me i asked him that you mean the handsome guy in the in the restaurant um is she for real or is that part of the game? Because she needs yeah. to bait him into following him and all that. Um, but that that um, energy and 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 uh, and command that she has, uh, it, it's necessary for us to trust that she would be able to lead uh, Nicholas uh, the way she leads him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and. Um... You know, there there are so many other terrific uh, character actors in this movie as well. This is you know, this is this is an era of filmmaking I truly miss where you could populate a movie with like five to ten great character actors and you know, you'll recognize them from each and every from this place and this place and this place. And I think the other uh biggest name in this movie at the time was Armin Mueller who had just been Oscar nominated in Shine. And yeah. he is basically a businessman that Nicholas is throwing out of the business and basically saying, you have to retire. And, you know, 
the way that plays into the game as well, this very genuine business decision that Nicholas was going to make, you know, the way that the game twists that into, well, is this an act of revenge on this guy's part or it, what's going on? And then he, he talks to Mueller Stroll's character and Mueller Stroll's character is like, you know, I've talked about with my family and this is the best decision for me. It's like, I'm, you know, I, I will gladly take this agreement. And, um, you know, it's, it's, but it's also, you know, I mean, I brought up a, a Christmas, uh, it's a wonderful life, but it's also a Christmas carol. I know that's been a comparison that people have made. I mean, cause, I mean, cause Nicholas Van Orton is <laughs> essentially Scrooge and I, <laughs> you know, you, you definitely see that in the way that he, the way that he looks at people who he sees are below him in yeah. social status. And, you know, it's like, that's, that's what makes this so, so interesting of a morality tale because of the fact that you don't know, you understand thematically where the movie is going, but you also are not quite sure how it's going to get there. You know it's probably going to get to this one moment of reckoning where he realizes kind of the error of his ways. Although, I don't know, you could almost make the argument as to whether he truly does. I mean, we, we don't... Re I, I don't feel like we get... To, and we, we'll talk about the ending more. Because I know even Fincher said, yeah, I'm not sure if we necessarily stuck the landing on that movie, uh, so to speak. But... Um, <laughs> But you, you do kind of get the impression that even, even if we don't see a dramatic change in him at the end, you kind of get the impression that that change is coming. And I think that is, that's always kind of an interesting way to end a character arc in a movie. You know, not the sense that, oh, he's, they're at the end of their journey. No, they're at the beginning of their next journey. And I, I think that's always kind of an interesting way of approaching a character arc. I think there are moments towards the end where you where you can see um, that that he's moving towards that change. For example, uh, there there are moments that that for me feel very organic, very real. For example, his uh, final conversation, not final, but but his conversation with his ex-wife at the diner. Yeah. When when he say he he asks her for for her car, uh, I think that conversation feels and and he finally apologizes to her and, and he apologizes to say you know I know I wasn't a, a good husband, I know I wasn't there uh, and I apologize and, and I think that uh, everything that has happened has led him uh, to that and you contrast it with his first conversation with his ex-wife which I was mentioning a while ago uh, that coldness and dismissiveness and, and you feel that's genuine. Uh, then there are others that, to me, feel uh, a, a bit forced or heavy-handed. For example, when he's in Mexico and he walks in that diner where he's all uh, taking all his, his the, the pennies from his yeah. pocket and he says, "Anybody driving to?" Uh, I, I, that that's one of those moments that feels. Uh, I know where what you're doing, but it feels a bit uh, a bit heavy-handed. Um, but but I think it it all uh, leads to that. 
you know, he's humbled, he's changed, he's not the, 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 the arrogant asshole that he was at the beginning, he's a, a bit more broken. Um, and and even, even things like costume changes, in the end, he's not wearing a suit, he's wearing more like a, like a sweater, yeah. uh, he, he looks more comfortable and more laid back, his hair is, is brushed different, so there, there's a more um, a relatable uh, look to him in the end than, than what you see in the beginning, all, all pressed up and, and hair slicked back. Um, but, but yeah, you, you get that idea, like I mentioned, that, that uh, there's more change to come for him. Yeah. Uh, what would you say is probably your favorite moment of the film? Oh, my God. Um, I think that the... the There are there are certain moments, little little moments. The the bit with the clown is is, is good, and that bit with the uh, the guy in the TV, yeah. the news guy, yeah. that yeah. that scene is always. I've always liked that one. Um, there's, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, but I'm I'm gonna throw a couple of moments that I like. I love because this is the moment I think of realization. But I love the moment in the cafeteria in the end. Mm-hmm. When they finally get to CRS, they see all you see all the people that he has met all through the night uh, sitting there having having uh, lunch. Yeah, uh, I I really love that moment um, it, because you see it, it it's one of those things again where when did the game end when did the game starts because the, not to deviate too much but even towards the end you know the guy that. It's in the airport with him, and, and he points him that yeah. the, the pen. Yeah. Uh, they, then you see him at the end, and he he's the one that's bringing the invoice to yeah. Conrad. <laughs> so he was seen <laughs> on the game as well. Uh, but those those little details, I like I like those little details. I like the moment with uh, also with uh, when he goes to uh, Christine's quote unquote house, because that's when you also realize oh she's in on it uh, at some level. When when he finds out like the 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 fridge is empty, the bookcases are fake. Um, Fincher throws all these little moments of oh shit, uh, oh um, this is not what I thought it was. Uh, I, those all those little moments I I really love. There's so so many so many little moments, and I love how they use they play with the CRS. The, the <laughs> you see the band. Outside Christine's house, it says cable repair, uh, <laughs> cable repair specialist, so it's something yeah. like that. The, the taxi cab where, where he hops in, the one that, that jumps in the river, uh, it says California Regal Sedans, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> all, all little hints, you know, to show you, oh, CRS is in on everything. Uh, but there are, there are many, many great scenes that I love. Yeah, I mean, I I think one of my uh, favorite moments in the film is uh, when him and uh, Christine are getting away, and they're they're you know they're they're climbing away, and I I think it's from the I I can't remember whether it's from the restaurant or the hospital, but they but like in the bit about you know how much his and and how much and modesty and stuff like that how much his shoes cost and stuff like that. It's like, yeah. really, are all these things important at this point? You're getting, you're, you're getting chased. What, what, are, what are you trying to do? Um, 
I do really like that. I like the. Uh, I like what leads to the hospital, how they get taken to the hospital, how they get out of the thing, and then all of a sudden the lights come out, turn out, yeah. and like everybody's gone in a split second. I I love that. I I love the idea that. This movie really does... I, I do, you know, it's like, as much as I'm somebody who is very much concerned about the level in which conspiracy theories have, you know, permeated into uh, modern discourse and modern society, uh, I'm also fascinated by it because of the fact that it's like, you know, what is... And I'm fascinated by it in films especially because it's like, how do you portray, how best can you portray somebody who feels, who, how much can you push somebody into thinking something is real that is not real? And what is that moment of, how, do, how does that radicalization happen? How, how does somebody who seems to be fairly well put together, mentally speaking, crack and i mean a couple of years ago i shared an episode that a friend of mine and i recorded on uh steven soberg's kafka uh and it's it's a terrific example of the same kind of thing that the game is doing i think and uh, and i mean the the if we're going back and going back to the frankenheimer movies i think the movie this most connects to of those three that I talked about earlier this month is Seconds with Rock Hudson, where it's basically, if you could have, a, if you were offered the chance to live a different life, would you take it? And could that give you fulfillment? And I think both movies in their own way is about are about finding you know, finding a way towards richer fulfillment in your in their the main characters' lives. And one of the things in Rock Hudson that Rock Hudson realizes is that just because you have everything you thought you wanted doesn't mean that you're happy. And Michael Douglas's character comes to realize that too, but in a very different way. And there are shadowy corporations that basically play into both of those fantasies and um now this is this is a movie i i love the difference i love the different ways in this movie the way this movie uh messes with nicholas van orton and i i love the i love the cinematography by harris savides and ah, they would like later collaborate on zodiac uh and then Howard Shore does a wonderful score in this movie, and I mean he he's one of the best. I mean you you know obviously from Seven and Silence of Lambs, which I know you love. I mean he he's a tremendous composer, yeah. and um, but yeah I I and but getting to that ending, it's like ultimately I I think that ending is great because of the fact that it's almost. It's almost the manifestation of what his father's death did to him by feeling like he he killed his brother he's 
feeling the weight of his actions towards his family. And that's something that his father didn't necessarily take into consideration when he took his own life. And I, I love that as, a, as, as something that this film gets to at the end. Yeah, it's it's that uh, to lead him to the same place that his father uh, was in, in the end. It, it's quite something. And um, one of the things that 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 I was thinking it, it's what it, it's how cold it is for this game to start, quote unquote, start. Putting that clown in the driveway in the same yeah. spot that his father. I mean, that's cold, um, and that's that's something that then you realize this this is not an ordinary game. This is not mm-hmm. something that that this, this is not a game. <laughs> and, and to see where how how it pushes him to that same spot, and to realize then. Uh, all the the, the 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 consequences of all the things that, that his behavior or, or, or his attitude or, or anything that he has done, uh, it, it's it's quite powerful. And uh, I, I just wanted to go back to something that you mentioned because you brought up seconds, and I, I really hadn't thought about about that comparison, but but I, I really like it as well. But one of the things that I remember about seconds, I just saw seconds like I think last year, and I, I really loved it. But I remember that one of the things that Rock Hudson says toward the end is that um, even though they gave me a new life, they're still making the choices. Yeah. They're still making the choices for me. Yeah. And that's something that you can see here. Um, You know, I'm in this game, but they're still making the choices for for Mm -hmm. Nicholas in in how the game is played, in how Christine is leading him, Christine and and Conrad, because even the scene where where he's with Conrad in the car and they have this this moment uh, where Conrad chastises him about their relationship and whatnot. Um, and, And it feels forced, but then again, it is. Because Conrad is pretty much acting it out, yeah. uh, uh, but but it's it's that that um, sense of of what is going on and and where is this game, uh, who who is who's calling the shots, which I, which is what I was what I was uh, going for. Um, it, it's a really really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned so you mentioned that this would be in your uh, top five of uh, Fincher. Would it be uh, giving away something to ask you exactly where in your top five? Uh, I put it, when I did the top five, I put it at number four. Okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I, think, that's, I, I think that's definitely fair. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I, I do think, uh, you know, with Zodiac, with Seven, with, I mean, I would put Fight Club up there as well with Social Network. Yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely bomb four. Yeah, definitely four or five. I can see that being a very fair yeah. assessment of the movie. Um, Anybody we, that knows me knows knows that seven it would be my number one. I mean, yeah. that that's that's not a secret. And I even mentioned Zodiac would be my my number two, and maybe Fight Club. Fight Club is it would be my number three, and then yeah. then the game. I know, I, and and I mentioned this in my episode. Um, so to everybody that 
wants to hear me talking more about Fincher, just stay tuned to the movie loot and, and uh, you, you can find that Fincher loot. But I, I know this is where I'm, I'm a bit uh, controversial, but Social Network is not a film that, it's a film I like. Like I said, I don't dislike any of his films, but it's a film that, weirdly enough, uh, hasn't resonated with me that much, which is weird because I work IT. Um, and it's not a film. It's a film I like a lot, but it's not a film that that kind of sticks with me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's even though all of Fincher films have that coldness, but it's a film that I really don't. I don't know. I I, I don't feel it. I mention it because I know it's uh, a lot of people's favorites, uh, but it, it's not mine. It's probably it would be seven, six, seven. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's like, I, I think social network would be higher for me just because of the fact that I'm, I, I, I find myself getting sucked in every time I watch it. And I, I just love the performances in that movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. By, by all means, uh, if, if you're not already listening to the movie loop, you should be listening to the movie loop because it's a lot of fun to listen to. And it was a lot of fun to do when we did the, uh, Silent Loop. It was it was great to be on the oh, yeah. episode with you. And um, before we wrap it up, do you have anything more that you want to uh, talk about with regards to the game? Uh, we mentioned him briefly, but I really wanted wanted to highlight him again. James James uh, Rephorn. Uh, I love him. This he, yeah. he's he's the guy that plays the CRS executive, and mm-hmm. he's he's so good. Um, you, you get uh, when when Michael Douglas goes to that first. Uh, interview he's so friendly but uh, a bit i don't want to say slimy but a bit like uh, sketchy yeah. <laughs> sketchy and yeah. fidgety and, <laughs> and weird which goes again to uh, who do i trust in this in this company who do i trust in this film um and i love him god bless him he mm-hmm. he, he passed away a couple of years ago and, and he yeah. was great yeah he he was he was terrific in anything that you watched um you saw him in, and uh, I, I just love how this movie just... I, I love how this movie escalates the situation for Van Orton every single moment. Like, there's always something that raises the stakes just a little bit more for him. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I completely understand where Fincher's coming from, where he might say, oh, I'm not sure if we'd quite nail the third act on that movie. But I, I think he... I think where he ends up i i think is a really great place to end up for this movie and especially given how uncertain the movie has been up to that point i i think it kind of makes sense that you end up in a place where you're you're still not entirely 100% certain of where the movie has ended up at that point um yeah it, it, it's it's <laughs> Most of my issues with the ending, and there are not big issues, obviously, for, for because obviously you know you already heard that I, how much I love the film, but most of my issues have to do with that specific rooftop scene and the whole execution of that jump and what, how how it leads to that. Um, but it's the kind of film where I, I really don't see it ending any other way. Yeah, because <laughs> this is this is what the film has led you all mm-hmm. the way. Um, and it's one of those cases where I think that uh, even with something that I said towards the beginning, even though it doesn't maybe doesn't hold up to close scrutiny, 
um, here's where the themes um, overcome the the, the, logi the logics of the film, and, and uh, I think it's important for the film to 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 end that way. And I understand what what Fincher was going for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Carlo, thank you again once once again for joining me on the podcast. Uh, where can people find you in the movie loop? It, they, you can listen to the movie loop on every podcasting platform, every streaming platform. Um, Good Pass, uh, you mentioned uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Good Google Podcasts, anywhere. Um, and I always say that anybody that listens to the movie loop, you will. Uh, I, it's my guarantee that you will walk away at least with one uh, worthy film recommendation. That's that's what I guarantee to anybody that listens to the show. Yeah, and it. Again, I mean, you you should hopefully you're already listening to the movie Lou, but if you're not, I I can't recommend it enough. Uh, Carlo's always I've always I've always been fascinated to talk to Carlo. I've always enjoyed my conversations, and this is no exception. So, Carlo, once again, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me again, and, and it, as usual, it's a fun conversation. It's always a, a lot of fun to talk with you. I'd like to thank Carlo once again for joining me. Uh, it's always great to talk to him, and please check out the movie, Lou. Uh, it is a lot of fun to listen to, and like like he said, there's always going to be something that you take away from that's uh, interesting, whether it's a film recommendation, whether it is a discussion. It's it's always fun to listen to the movie, Lou. That's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. We're changing pace as I change jobs for the first time in 20 plus years. It's, uh, it's going to be a bit of a change, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, we are going to be talking about my annual trip to Dragon Con in September, as well as film festivals and kind of how they fit into the award season. And we're, we can only do that by talking with Amanda Spears. And I'm looking forward to talking to her again. For now, though, please check me out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Uh, anywhere you listen to the Sonic Cinema podcast, YouTube, Apple, Google, Spotify, GoodBot. And also, obviously, my written work at www.sonic-cinema.com. <laughs>